If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We hope you've been enjoying the History Extra podcast and all it has to offer. Summer is the perfect time to delve deeper into the things you love. So subscribe to BBC History magazine for just £24.99 every six issues, saving 30% on the shop price. Plus, you will receive a book of your choice worth up to £30. Choose from Russia, Revolution and Civil War, 1917 to 1921 by Anthony Beaver, In Search of the Dark Ages by Michael Wood, signed edition, in Search of Mary Seacole, The Making of a Cultural Icon by Helen Rappaport, signed edition. Or Persians, The Age of the Great Kings by Professor Lloyd Llewellyn Jones. To take advantage of this offer and for more information, visit www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash summer reads 2022. Offer ends on the 5th of August 2022. Offer only available to UK residents. Please visit website for terms and conditions. <laughs> And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. As the founder of the SAS, David Sterling has gone down as one of Britain's great Second World War heroes. But is Sterling's reputation as a daring military genius really deserved? In his revisionist new biography, The Phony Major, Special Forces historian Gavin Mortimer claims that it very much isn't. Based on extensive research into the SAS and Sterling's life, Mortimer argues that his legend is largely a myth and that many of Sterling's achievements should have in fact been credited to others. He spoke to Rob Attar. Gavin, as the title of your book, The Phony Major, suggests, this is a fairly revisionist account of the life of David Sterling. But before we come on to your take on him, what what is the Sterling myth that you feel needs to be challenged? The myth that needs to be challenged is that David Sterling was the sole founder and inspiration of the Special Air Service and even more pertinently, that he was the great warrior who uh, the terror of the Nazis, the scourge of Rommel, which is very much the image portrayed in the book, The Phantom Major, that was published in 1958. And, and that was the beginning of a myth, because in the 10 years after the war, Sterling more or less went into a self-imposed exile in, in southern Africa because he knew the truth. 
And as I explained, uh, but fundamental to this story is is Paddy Main, Blair Main, the second in command of the SAS, who Sterling was afraid of and was envious of. Do you feel this myth came about a large part through through the publication of the Phantom Major? And, and have subsequent books, TV programmes, have they built on, on the myth from the Phantom Major? Yes, it was very much. Paddy Main, I'll refer to Paddy Main as Paddy Main throughout. His name was uh, Blair Main, but he was known, he was a rugby uh, international before the war. He was known really by, by everyone as Paddy Main. He was the, the epitome of the SAS warrior. Um, and he was the man that Sterling wanted to be. And as I said, he was envious of the fact that Sterling was clumsy, uncoordinated, uh, unathletic. He was immature. He was really everything that a guerrilla fighter, a, a good guerrilla fighter shouldn't be. Paddy Main, his one weakness was he liked a drink. He wasn't an alcoholic, but he liked he was a binge drinker, I suppose, to use the modern vernacular. And unfortunately, in 1955, December 1955, age 40, he was killed in a, in a car crash coming back from a night out. And that was the opportunity for Sterling to come back to the UK to find a publisher, Virginia Cowles, who uh, a couple of years previously had written a biography of Churchill, which Churchill was very... Uh, uh, pleased with and sent her a note. And Sterling, his one objective was to rewrite the history of the SAS with him as the warrior. And he, to do that, he had to diminish Paddy Main. So he turned Paddy Main into this dark, brooding, barely articulate, wild, undisciplined Irishman who only Sterling could control. Now, this was nonsense. But Blair Main, as I said, was a rugby international. He was also, he'd, he'd gone to Queen's, he'd studied law. And he had, just in the summer of 1939, he had joined one of the Belfast's leading firm of solicitors. And he would appeared in court as a young solicitor. He'd been voted on to the student council at, at Queen's. He was popular with his peers. So really, he was an academic, an athlete, not at all, you know, an articulate man, quite a shy man, but um, not the man portrayed in The Phantom Major. But of course, he was dead. And very importantly, the other founding officers of the SAS, Jock Lewis in particular, he was killed in the war. So there was no one to challenge Sterling's interpretation. And bear in mind, Sterling was a minor aristocrat. His mother was a friend of Queen Mary and of Stanley Baldwin, the former prime minister. One of his friends was Randolph Churchill, who actually came up with their moniker, the Phantom Major. The Phantom Major was a notorious case in the 20s of a, of a First World War major who murdered his wife and then vanished. There was a big manhunt and eventually he was washed up in the Thames. He'd committed suicide. Anyway, it was Randolph Churchill who came up in September 42 with a phantom major. This man, as I said, the scourge of the Nazis, who was so like a sort of a latter-day scarlet pimpernel. And that was, of course, that, that was not the reality. The reality was that Sterling was a very clumsy Special Forces officer. Most of his operations ended 
in, if not disaster, certainly in failure. Whereas Paddy Main, every time uh, he went off um, what he would describe as good hunting, he would invariably destroy a dozen or 20 German planes, etc. So, th- so the Phantom Major, uh, but, but of course, it also, very importantly, it was published by luck just at the moment that Britain needed a hero. Its morale was at rock bottom. We'd had the Suez crisis barely 18 months before, and the the empire was breaking up. The countries were demanding their independence. So Britain was in need of a hero, and along came the Phantom Major. Some of the reviews, more than one, mentioned the word Elizabethan, as in the the buccaneers of of, of uh, yesteryear, the the gallant dashing Englishman, and this was very much how it was portrayed in the press. So your book obviously comes out some you know more than sixty years after Phantom Major did. In the intervening period, have other historians questioned Sterling and his role, or is this the first time this has happened? Now, this is the first time, and I, my, I myself, when I was a, a young man, my uh, first book, Sterling's Men was uh, published nearly 20 years ago. And I very much added to the uh, the myth, the aura of Sterling. And Sterling died in 1990. And in the months before his death, he had worked on or collaborated with an author who wrote his biography, his authorised biography. That, again, consolidated what had been written in The Phantom Major. What Sterling, in effect, did was he switched places with Maine because David Sterling, he was the one who was depressive and he was insecure and he was someone, uh, I suppose, a rather needy figure. That was Sterling, but Sterling made Maine out to be that. And the this autobiography, this, I mean, it was in effect an autobiography. Great chunks of it is just Sterling speaking. And there are other books, of course, uh, Another pivotal moment in the Sterling myth, but also what I, what I describe as today as the cult of the SAS, was the embassy siege in 1980, when some terrorists seized the Iranian embassy in, in Kensington in London, and there was a six-day standoff, and the terrorists murdered one of the 26 hostages, and Margaret Thatcher, then PM, sent in the, the SAS and it was very dramatic. It was really one of the first instances of reality TV because the, the world's press were, were camped outside and you saw these black clad figures abseiling down this very elegant white facade. And they freed the hostages and uh, killed five of the terrorists. And it was a great success. And um, that really started the, the SAS brand, if you like. And, and of course, at the time, they weren't very well known. And Sterling really took advantage of this, and he wrote several forewords for books and, and again, portrayed himself as the founder of the SAS and very much the man whose single-handedly his audacity, his courage, had taken the SAS from this very small unit of 66 men to, um, by the end of the war, a brigade of 2,500 and then uh, a regiment 2-2 SAS, which is uh, what we know the SAS today. So the last 10 years of his life really allowed him to embellish even more the, the myth of uh, the Phantom Major. Clearly his writings and his recollections aren't necessarily to be trusted in this regard. 
So what sources have you drawn upon to create your picture of Sterling and, you know, and of Maine and the SAS at this time? I've interviewed about well, 60 or 70 veterans of the uh, wartime SAS. And, and one of the things that did strike me was that they spoke with reverence of Paddy Maine. And they were in awe of Maine and he took great care of his men and he would never risk their lives. There's a, a, a bit of a misconception that he was, uh, he was reckless. He, he wasn't. What I did find, uh, and as I said, I was, when I first wrote about Sterling and the SAS 20 years ago, I was immature as a writer. And, it, but it, it did strike me that when they talked of Sterling, it was, there was much less enthusiasm and, and of course, that was because Sterling wasn't really part of the SAS, if I can put it that way. By which, what I mean is that the SAS was created in um, August 1941. He was captured in January 43. And in those 18 months, he spent most of his time in Cairo. His brother was the secretary at the British Embassy. And the SAS base was in a place called Cabrit, which was 80 miles east of Cairo. And it was Paddy Main who was psychologically was the leader, the commanding officer of the SAS. Sterling was intimidated by Main. He knew that he had the respect of, of the men. And so Sterling took himself out of the SAS, spent time with his brother, and he formed this, this clique of upper-class officers. So you had Randolph Churchill, who couldn't have been more unsuited to the SAS, but because he was a friend of uh, Sterling's, and also, fair enough, he was the Prime Minister's son, and Ster Sterling, Sterling was very good at networking, and he was the very good at selling his idea of the SAS because he was well-connected. Um, but you had Fitzroy McLean, the old... Jellico and several other, Carol Mather and, and Stephen Hastings, both later Tory MPs. So, so that's, that's who he spent his time with. And so going back over the, these, these many, many hours of interviews with the veterans, I began to see that it was, it was Maine who they regarded as Mr. SAS, if I can put it like that. And then also I just began to reread the books and the operational reports, and, and things had always not quite seemed right. And I began to, the more I looked, and I, and I really dug deep into the National Archives, at Middle East file, so they weren't specifically SAS, but they were GHQ, and there was a lot of material there, which I found very critical of Sterling, his very shoddy idea of logistics, the long-range desert group, who were the pioneers of, of British special forces in the Second World War, they were they became more and more exasperated with Sterling and and just his his rather cavalier approach. He treated it as a game, as I said. It, I used the word earlier, immature, and that I think really is a word that goes to the heart of of Sterling. That he, he was someone who just he was in love with the idea of being a scarlet pimpernel, but he wasn't suited to it physically or temperamentally. And it's only when I, when I delved deep into, into the archives and then uh, augmented that with my own interviews and, uh, and, and other sources with a long range desert group that I began really to see uh, the truth. Could you tell us a little bit also about David Sterling's pre-war life 
And how far was that part of the myth that grew up around him? One of the things he did, and I discuss in the book, is that with the Phantom Major and then his biography, is he didn't just twist the the facts of his Second World War experience, but he created this whole new person before and after the war. For a start, he wasn't born in Scotland. He was born in London. He never went to America uh, with the idea of climbing Everest. He went there to ranch. He was sent to America in 1938 by his brother, Bill. We mentioned Bill in a minute, who was really the intellectual force of the, of the SAS. But Bill, who was the eldest of six siblings, he and his mother, who was a very, a real alpha female, a very impressive figure. And they were at their wits end with, with David because he hadn't really been a success at Ampleforth school where the brothers were sent in in Yorkshire. He'd then gone up to Cambridge. Uh, He'd lasted just three terms at Cambridge. He then, his um, brother and his mother, secured him a a position at a architect's firm in Edinburgh. He quit that after a few months. And he really became, to use the, um, the, the jargon of a day, a lounge lizard in the 1930s. So they they had a family friend who had a uh, a ranch in um, El Paso, and they sent him out there in 1938. Now Sterling would have you believe in later life that he went there to train for to climb Mount Everest, which was his one goal. He didn't at all. And there's letters and there's newspaper reports saying that uh, he, in fact, I found a very funny diary piece in Tatler in early 1939, saying that the Honourable Mrs. Sterling had dispatched her her son to, to El Paso in the hope that it would put some lead in his pencil, so to speak. So that myth only started in the, in the Phantom Major. Similarly, in his biography in, published in 1992, he said that he was sent down from Cambridge because he was at Newmarket gambling the whole time. He wasn't. He was never at the three terms he was at Cambridge. They weren't continuous. They were. He was there for a couple of terms and then he came back. But he was never there in the racing season. But he created this gambler, this, again, this, this mountaineer, this daredevil man, instead of the reality, which is he was a lounge lizard. And then the other thing that he created, this wasn't in the Phantom Major. This came out in the 1980s. He decided that he'd... Uh, that for 18 months in the 1930s, he'd gone to Paris to study under the, the great French painter André Haute, but that didn't work out, but he'd had a wonderful time uh, on the left bank. And that, again, completely fictitious. The older he got, the more he weaved this complete web of, of untruths, but it was, in his head, it was the man he wished he'd have been, which is why he stole... Paddy Main's character and his exploits because he was creating this this completely fictitious um, figure. If you like, I mean, there's a, there's a term now that uh, some people may have heard of, Walter Mitty, which is uh, in the British military circles. Walter Mitty was a, a 1939 short story of this uh, American man who's a daydreamer and he's always dreaming of his brave and gallant deeds that he's done. In fact, he leads a very mundane and ordinary life. And that's that's come to, 
to be the the nickname for people who claim to have been in the the armed forces. It's usually something to do with the SAS. You know, he, there's an argument for saying David Sterling was the original Walter Mitty because he was obviously in the SAS, but a lot of what he claimed in his life didn't actually happen. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Paddy Main kicked open the door and stood there for a couple of seconds as these startled German aircrew looked up from their having their supper or playing cards uh, at Paddy Main, who said in his quiet Irish brogue, good evening, and then opened fire. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply how did Sterling come to be involved in the Desert War then? I mean, that, that is true. He, you know, he was there. He was, he was in North Africa. How did that come about? So I mentioned earlier Bill Sterling. So Bill, for me, I would describe Bill Sterling as the father of British Special Forces. He was a very discreet man. And of course, being the eldest of a family, he inherited when Sterling's, their father died in 1932, he inherited the estate in uh Kier, just uh, close to Dunblane, and so a lot of land, a lot of money, and he was a he was a very generous man, generous to his five siblings. But he he joined SOE or MIR, Military Intelligence Research, the forerunner of the Special Operations Executive, in beginning of 1940, and he went on a, a special operations mission to Norway in April 1940. And their submarine hit a surface mine en route to Norway. So the submarine came back to Rosyth uh, for some repairs. And it was, he said, to, there were six of them. He invited the, uh, his comrades to, to Kia just to rest and recuperate while they got another submarine. Uh, the mission actually was aborted. But it was Bill, while they were there, the six of them said, listen, this, this whole operation was actually pretty poorly planned. And let's be honest, we are very much naive and ignorant about what's needed for uh, guerrilla warfare. But I think we should open a guerrilla warfare school. So Bill Sterling took this idea to the war office and it coincided with Winston Churchill's uh, replacing Chamberlain in May 1940. The war office saw the uh, validity of this uh, idea. And so in beginning of June, 1940, in the northwest of Scotland, Bill Sterling opened the um, Special Training Centre, 
and he one of one of the his senior instructor was his cousin Lord Lovett. He got from around um, Britain experts in demolitions, in uh, map reading, in unarmed combat, in small arms shooting. Uh, 1924 British shooting gold medalist, for example. And and through that school, throughout the summer of 1940, came hundreds of the newly formed commandos. And one of the people who came through it too was David Sterling. David Sterling wasn't one of the instructors. This is another myth that he's put out there and people have believed that he was he was one of the senior instructors. David was in the Scots Guards. He was a dreadful guardsman. He was known, known as the giant sloth because he was so lazy and he spent his time in London gambling and drinking. Bill came to his rescue, put him through his commando school, secured a place for him in number eight commando, which was the posh commando unit, if I can put it like that, the guards commando. So a lot of aristocrats in there. He was right at home there. Evelyn Waugh, the novelist, was one of them. And Evelyn Waugh, who uh, he remembered Sterling as someone who spent most of his time gambling or asleep in his bunk when they shipped out to the Middle East in January 1941. Bill Sterling was also sent to the Middle East with SOE in 1941. He very quickly um, became attached, became taken on by General Arthur Smith, who was the chief of the general staff to Wavell, who was a commander-in-chief Middle East. So Bill Sterling was right at the heart of, of power. And he saw in the summer of 1941, by which time, obviously, Rommel and the Africa Corps had joined the Italians and uh, the British having really defeated the Italians at the start of 1941. Now they were suddenly on the back foot. But he saw, through his previous experience and being at the heart of Middle East HQ, that an opportunity for a special forces unit, an airborne special forces unit, using parachute to, to drop into to enemy-occupied Libya and attack airfields, and uh, etc. So David Sterling, who by this time, the commandos in the Middle East, had uh, they were on the brink of being disbanded. He was in- inherently lazy, David Sterling. He needed to be pushed the whole time. And luckily, he had his brother, Bill, to do that and to take him under his wing. So it was really Bill Sterling who came up with the idea of the SAS. And of course, he was in a position to hand this idea to Middle East uh, HQ. Now, another great fallacy that uh, David Sterling uh, propagated was that he broke into GHQ. He climbed over the fence or in another version, he climbed under the fence and he he got into G- preposterous. If you can imagine, this is the height of a war. They knew that Cairo was a hotbed with enemy agents. To to think that someone could just climb over the fence, of course, it was well guarded. But it, it it's part of the myth of our oh, Sterling, the uh, this daredevil. And um, anyway, the GHQ they trusted Bill Sterling. And they authorised the the raising of this small unit. Now, one of the um, evidence that Bill St- of the fact it was Bill Sterling's idea, and that he really recruited the officers. That two of the, the two of the officers recruited. Uh, we've mentioned Paddy Main. Paddy Main had he was in Number Eleven Scottish Commando. He had left Scottish Commando. He'd been forced out because he had a he confronted the CO. 
um, Jeffrey Keys and, and actually pushed him. They'd had an argument and like a rugby handoff, he'd shoved him, which is a serious offence. But Jeffrey Keyes was was very similar to David Sterling. He was this privileged, entitled, foppish, upper-class officer. And there's absolutely no way that Paddy Main, having escaped the clutches of one um, such officer, would then throw his lot in with David Sterling. David Sterling claimed that Paddy Main was in the glasshouse in a military prison, having struck his officer, which it wasn't true. He pushed him. He, he wasn't under arrest. And that he, he talked Paddy into joining the SAS. That's not true. It was Bill Sterling who recruited Paddy. So Bill Sterling was very much the brains of, of the SAS, both in how the idea came to be, the recognition that there was an opportunity for a very much smaller than the commandos, which were troops of a couple of hundred, but for groups of eight, ten men to to operate in uh, as guerrilla saboteurs. But Bill was recalled to England in beginning of November 1941, two weeks before the inaugural SAS operation. And there's a fascinating letter that David wrote to his mother on the eve of that operation, the 15th of November, his 26th birthday. And he says in the letter how much he misses Bill. And he also says, says extraordinarily that he hasn't felt as homesick as he does now since he was a, a boy at Ampleforth College. So that just, I think, shows how, again, without Bill there as his emotional crutch, he was lost. And of course, that first SAS operation, they were advised by the 8th Army not to continue with it, to abort it, because the weather, it coincided with one of the fiercest tropical storms in uh, in the Western Desert for nearly about half a century. But um, I've no doubt that had Bill Sterling been in Cairo still, he would have said to David, abort it. David didn't. And of the 55 men who went on that operation, 34 were killed or captured. But there were also a number of SAS raids in the time before David Sterling was captured that were more successful than that. So was that success generally in spite of Sterling or did he play any role towards it? No, it was in spite of Sterling, actually. Um, You're quite right. So what happened after that, the disastrous first raid, the long-range desert group, whose speciality was reconnaissance uh, and they were brilliant navigators, they suggested to Sterling that it made sense if they taxied them to their target uh, because the, the Germans and the Italians really stayed to the coastal areas of, of the desert. They, they were, unlike the British, they were afraid of the interior. And the Long Range Desert Group was founded by Ralph Bagnold, who was a, in the 20s a famous desert explorer. And they were really the masters of the desert. So what happened, the, the Long Range Desert Group, in their Chevrolet trucks, took the the SAS to within three miles of the target airfield. And the SAS would then proceed on foot to the airfield. And and then they would rendezvous with the Long Range Desert Group after they had um, carried out their sabotage. Now, the first operation involved Paddy Main and David Sterling, and they split into two. Quite inexplicably, Sterling took just one other soldier with him, Jimmy Broth, whereas Maine took five, or six in total, uh, Maine and five others. This was at Tamit Airfield. 
and they destroyed 24 aircraft and they also saw a faint strip of light. Uh, you have to imagine it's pitch dark in these airfields. They, they weren't guarded because the Germans and Italians thought we're many miles behind lines. We have nothing to fear. And this light, it was the door of a, um, a air cruise mess. And Paddy Main kicked open the door and stood there for a couple of seconds as these startled German aircrew looked up from their having their supper or playing cards uh, at Paddy Main, who said in his quiet Irish brogue, good evening, and then opened fire. So they destroyed um, a mess full of uh, aircrew and 24 enemy aircraft. David Sterling, who attacked Sirt with one other man, fell into a slit trench and they were chased off the airfield. So they destroyed nothing. Two weeks later, they returned to the same airfields. This time, Paddy Main and his five men destroyed 27 aircraft. Sterling, this time, wandered into a minefield. And when one of his men, Johnny Cooper, uh, one of the men I interviewed, when they were aware that they'd strayed into a minefield, Johnny Cooper, in a, in a whisper, said uh, to the man in front of him, Tell the boss we're in a minefield. So this was like China, Chinese whispers passed on. And David Sterling's reaction was to stand up and bellow at the top of his voice, what? What's that you say? And, of course, the, the Italian guards heard him, and again they were chased off the airfield. And in the meantime, the other important SAS officer, Bill Fraser, he and four men had blown up 37 aircraft on another airfield. So between them, Fraser and Maine had accounted for nearly uh, nearly 100 aircraft and Sterling, none. So Sterling's response, envious of Maine, aware that Maine was, to all intents and purposes, the leader of the SAS, he appointed him um, the training officer in beginning of 1942, uh, which is a bit like putting your, your leading goal scorer in a football team, putting him on the, on the substitutes bench because he's scoring too many goals. Sterling went off on, on a couple of raids to um, a port, Borat, and um, he took with him a canoe and thinking that they would paddle out and, and plant some mines on German shipping. It hadn't occurred to him that travelling over the desert terrain, very rocky, very bumpy for a couple of hundred miles, wasn't very good to these very flimsy canoes. And sure enough, when they arrived at their destination and they um, unloaded the canoe, it was just really sort of wood and um, torn canvas. And, uh, and yet two months later, he did exactly the same thing at Benghazi and the same result. And so reluctantly, he brought Maine back and, and Maine his next raid, he destroyed 15 aircraft. And um, there, there was success in, in 1942, but it was Paddy Main. And it took Sterling until the summer of I think, June 1942 before he, he managed to, to, to destroy anything. And had it not been, as I say in the book, had it not been for Paddy Main, uh, one of those historical what-ifs, if Main had been killed or captured on that first raid, in November 1941, I've no doubt that the SAS would have disbanded, broken up and, and returned to their units and we would have heard no more of the SAS. Despite all, all of Sterling's faults, did he have 
any positive qualities that you can identify? Did he make any positive contributions to the SAS? He was he was an ideas man. His brother Peter Sterling, the who I mentioned, was uh, in the foreign offices in the British Embassy. He said uh, there was a, a quote from him that David came up with very good ideas, but he needed to be controlled. And I think that's a very good way of putting it, as you'd expect from a, someone who knew him very well, uh, the the real Sterling. He was someone who saw the the potential of the SAS. He was really a staff officer. He wasn't someone who should have been in the field. And he was charismatic. One of the explanations as to why Sterling was able to create the myth of a phantom major that endured for three quarters of a century was that he he had the the word that you that I came that I discovered time and time again of of officers using was I fell under his spell. I was spellbound by him. He had this extraordinary charisma. He was a he was about six foot four and a half, but he had this way of stooping and looking down. He had a very penetrating gaze. So he had this way of, and other men have said he he had this ability of talking when he talked to you to make you feel how much he depended on you and that you mustn't let him down and that how important you were. So he was very manipulative, but in, in terms of good qualities, he was physically brave. When early on in the SAS training, two recruits were killed when their parachutes didn't open and there was a problem with a static line and they plummeted to their deaths in front of the the men. And obviously morale was shattered. And yet they were back up in the RAF parachute instructor, identified the problem um, very quickly and resolved it. And the next day they went back in the, in the air and it was Sterling who made the first jump. So he he was, and, and to go on these missions, I, I feel in, in many ways I, I have some sympathy for Sterling, because I think he he found himself very quickly out of his depth. He knew he was out of his depth. That's why he spent a lot of his time with his brother and uh, with Peter and with Bill Sterling uh, for for a, for a few months. With three of them lived together, he forced himself into these situations, and he did as well as he could. He wasn't a coward. He never ran away. And although one could say, of course, if he'd had real moral courage, he would have recognised that he was out of his depth and he was he would have perhaps relinquished his command or found a way. But as I write in the book, he was captured in January 1943. They didn't post any guards and yet they'd passed through a German column only uh, a few miles previously. Uh, a few weeks before, he'd, he'd been in hospital for a couple of weeks with conjunctivitis and very bad desert sores. He was physically and emotionally worn down, and I suspect that he wanted to be captured. That was his way out, that he'd, he was at the end of his tether. In the book, I quote a letter from Bill Sterling to his mother, saying that I think a, a prisoner of war camp may be the best thing for him because I think he recognised that he was out of his depth. And uh, so in that respect, I, I do have some some admiration for him. And and after, as I said, it, as soon as the war ended, he didn't stay in the army. Now, it, if he'd been such a great guerrilla genius, you'd have thought he'd have stayed on in some capacity, but he didn't. He didn't want the army. The army didn't particularly want him. If he hadn't written the Phantom Major, if he hadn't quite deliberately set out to diminish both his brother Bill 
and Paddy Main. I would have found him, in, in a way, a sympathetic figure. But the way he quite willfully diminished Bill and tarnished Paddy is, is his greatest sin. That was Gavin Mortimer. His book, David Sterling, The Phony Major, The Life, Times and Truth About the Founder of the SAS, is out now, published by Constable. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might also like another of our recent episodes, where historian Jonathan Fennell delved into the Desert War of 1940 to 1943. You can find that by searching for Desert War in your podcast feeds. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.